you have an idea. It just like kind of bubbles up out of nowhere and you're like, that's cool because it feels good. And you're like, that's cool. I should do that. Everyone's going to love that. And that's how you get tricked. (laughs) You're like, I feel really good about this. Therefore, it must be good because it makes me feel good. But exactly, it's like a little bit of a high on it. But it doesn't mean anything about the idea. It doesn't tell you any information about it other than how you feel about it. Welcome to Level Up Your Course, where we pull back the curtain on what it takes to create learning that transforms lives. You will hear stories from business owners like you who share their success and their struggles. This is not where you come to hear passive income myths, friend. This is where you learn the truth about building a profitable learning platform. I am your host, Janelle Allen, and this is is today's episode. What's up, everyone? This is your host, Janelle Allen. I am here today with the amazing Amy Hoy, truth-sayer, holder of strong feelings, developer, creator of Just Fucking Ship, or co-brain behind Stacking the Bricks, Sales Safari, and 30 by 500 and more. That is a lot. I'm out of breath. I could go on and on, (laughs) but instead, I will just welcome Amy and let her introduce herself. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Would you just write all my bios? <laughs> <laughs> they would be so long. Yeah, I feel like you do so many things well. Thank you. And oh, so, thank you. That's so nice. <laughs> you know, I've known of you for a while, a little bit of a, an internet stalking situation <laughs> before we actually met. I think Brennan Dunn is how I originally got introduced to your work. And then Philip Morgan, a few people. But can you tell us a bit more about yourself and the work that you do for people who don't know? Okay. Yes. As you said, I do a lot of things. I have a lot of fingers and a lot of pies. Don't invite me over when you're baking. <laughs> My main business, if as it were, is a software as a service business called Freckle Time Tracking. It's actually my main business. I have a real passion for helping people, designers and developers, people like me, create products that sell so that Mm -hmm. they can create an independent income because it's made such a difference in my life. After my husband and I launched Freckle Time Tracking, which is, as you might guess, a time tracking application, the freedom that it gave us to be running our own software as a service, I just really wanted to share that with all of my friends who I saw (laughs) launching, pardon me, stupid idea after stupid idea. It's not that the ideas were stupid as side projects or for fun, but that they thought that they were going to make a profitable business out of them. And they were, it was never going to happen, like dropping a ball and hoping that it would fall upwards. It was never happening. So I set out to create a course to teach the people who were like me how to create things that would sell, because that's something that I knew and understood innately that they did not. And so that led to the things that you did mention. So the 30 by 500 class where I teach with Alex, Sales Safari, so that people with analytical minds who are designers or developers or copywriters can learn how to figure out what will my audience actually buy and start with that rather than coming up with a cool idea, which may be cool and fun and awesome and exciting and get lots of traffic, but may not sell. Yeah. And that's really the core of the class is how do you start with something that will sell from the beginning? Cool. I want to get into that. So You have a great way of just getting right to the point and talking about all of the unsexy stuff. Like there's no, you know, polishing (laughs) and making people feel warm and fuzzy. It's just like, look, this is a dumb idea. Let me show you how to come up with a good one. So we're going to get into that one. Okay, great. But first, it is time for the rapid five. I've got five quick questions to help listeners get to know you. Ready? Okay, great. Yes. All right. Number one, paper books or audio books? Paper for sure. Yeah. Two, how do you feel about squirrels? Now that I live in the country, I like them again. In the city, it was war. City squirrels, they're no joke. They're hardened. I love this question because everyone has like a squirrel story. And <laughs> oh, yes. I yeah. have some squirrel stories. The squirrels in Chicago are just, they're just gangsta. I've seen them eating pizza on the street, a, bit, like a deep dish piece of pizza. It's just crazy. It's crazy. All right. I, I'm not super excited to say this, but I once maced a squirrel in Philadelphia and that squirrel exacted revenge on me later. Oh, wow. You 
It was it was uh, squirrel repellent. It wasn't like people mace. You've taken it to another level. Okay, but the, the squirrel the squirrel got me back. So oh, even even on the boards. All right, number three. <laughs> Would you rather have the ability? Wait, pause. I wonder how much time that squirrel devoted to planning to get you back. <laughs> well, I was spraying all of our plant planters with squirrel repellent, which has a little bit of capsaicin in it. You know, like mm-hmm. the stuff that makes yeah. peppers hot. And um, it was just like watching me, and it was like. That's just nothing to me. Ha, I'm just staying here. And I was like, finally, I was like, it was like, I sprayed it in the face. I was out of my mind. I don't recommend spraying a squirrel. It was a terrible thing. I should never have done it. Yeah. I felt immediately guilty. But it ran up my drain pipe every night for two weeks and screeched for half an hour. Wow. So it took two weeks of screeching. for. And squirrels are loud yeah. for half an hour. So I got the picture. I never maced a squirrel again. <laughs> okay. Well, that's yeah. the first for the show. All right. <laughs> so back to number three. Would you rather have the ability to time jump or the ability to be in two places at once? Ooh, I like that much better than flying versus invisibility where there's only one correct answer. Time <laughs> jump or two places at once? I think two places at once. I had a feeling you were going to say that one. Okay. Number four, what is one myth about entrepreneurship that you'd love to obliterate? I have to pick one. Um, one. <laughs> <laughs> if you build it, they will come. Mm, good. Okay, that's a good foundation for this conversation. And last one, what is the hardest lesson you have learned as an entrepreneur? That just because it is something that people need and will pay for and it's actually a good business does not mean it's a good business for you. Mm. Okay, dropping all the dimes. We could just hang up right now (laughs) and people can just marinate on that right there. But we are going to get into it. But Before we do, I don't think we've talked about where you live. I know you live in Pennsylvania. Are you originally from Pennsylvania? No, I'm from Maryland. So that's exciting. Okay. (laughs) Cool. So, and then you mentioned you moved from Philly. I know you you tweet about Philly a lot. Yes. Now you're in the country. Yes. Okay. Yes. My husband, I actually moved from Maryland to Vienna, Austria to live with my husband who is Austrian. And then we decided to move back to the US. So we lived in Philly and now we live in the boonies on 10 acres. Very nice. Very nice. Okay. So tell us about your journey. You kind of alluded to it earlier. You said when you and your husband made the software, it changed your life. How did you get your start as an entrepreneur? So I actually started really young because I didn't have money and I wanted things. Yeah. Uh, the earliest like super entrepreneurial thing I can remember is I sold all of my My Little Ponies at a yard sale, among other things, because I was trying to save money for a new computer, a uh, newer used computer. And I was, I think, 12 mm-hmm. at the time. I mean, I did the usual car washing, that kind of babysitting, that kind of stuff. But uh, that was great because I sold them all as a bundle, an entire bucket to a nice lady in the neighborhood for $80. Nice. Bundling early. Yeah. Alex and I actually <laughs> did a podcast on kid businesses. Um, that was really fun. I've been a little hustler for a long time. But as a professional person, I did a lot of freelancing as a teenager. Like I got into computer stuff early. I sort of fell into it. I was really obsessed with it. Freelanced till I was about 21. Then I got conned out of a lot of work and had to get a job. And then I got a different job and I got a different job. And I just realized that working for other people was not for me. And so mm-hmm. I became a consultant, which is different than a freelancer because you charge a lot more. Yeah. And theoretically, people listen to you more. It's not really true in my experience. And I just got really, really, really sick of doing consulting and having the projects like never see the light of day, which is really common. Mm-hmm. People will pay you tons of money yeah. and they will just not ship the project. You know, like the person who's in charge of the project will be swapped out six times or at the end of it, they will be like, our priorities have changed and they just like shit can it. And I'm just like, ah, yeah. <laughs> I got into this because I like making things and I'm making things and you're just literally throwing them away. Okay. Ah! <laughs> at some point in there, uh, 2007, 2008, started working on little side projects with people and shipping them. And that was so awesome that I knew I just had to do that. Yeah. Instead of waiting for people to hire me. And then they just crushed all my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> so what made you decide to start shipping products? That was the feeling of having shipped these side projects, which were just fun. I worked on Color Wars with Zay Frank and Alex also. That was back in 2008, I think, on Twitter, very early 2008. 
And then later in 2008, Thomas and I made Twistory, which was a sort of emotional Twitter barometer. It's still online. That got a lot of traffic. And we just like, I came up with the idea and we just made it and we shipped it. Mm -hmm. And it was so good. And I was like, oh yeah, I can do more than just write blog posts and post cheat sheets and stuff and conference talks without interference. I can launch projects. Yeah, I've always wanted to run a software business because I looked at software and thought I could do better. People paid me to do better, but then they <laughs> they destroyed my work repeatedly. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to finally get off my ass and finally do what I've been saying I'm going to do for five years and I'm going to ship a software product. Okay. Now, and I'm assuming all of the lessons you learn are what led to Just Fucking Ship, which is... Absolutely. I think that was the first product I bought of yours. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. The funnel is working. <laughs> Great. Yes. So you said something earlier about people who have ideas that are not good and how things just came innate to you as far as like, that's not going to work. Let me show you how to do it so that it works. My first question is, what is it about ideas that kind of grates at you about the approach that people take to either coming up with ideas for products or whatever the case may be. What is it that people are doing that they shouldn't be doing and that what can you say that they should be doing? I want to preface this by saying that I do this too. I just know that I'm doing it. Mm. And this is, I think, why I can understand it. You have an idea. It just like kind of bubbles up out of nowhere and you're like, that's cool. Yeah. Because it feels good. And you're like, that's cool. I should do that. Everyone's going to love that. And that's how you get tricked. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I feel really good about this. Therefore, it must be good because it makes me feel good. The emotion. But exactly. It's like, it's like a little bit of a high on it. But it doesn't mean anything about the idea. It doesn't tell you any information about it other than how you feel about it. And, and that could be a great reason for a side project just for fun. And I think side projects for fun are important. But you can't go into them with the expectation that everyone else is going to feel about it the way you do. Yeah. The thing about things that sell is without a customer who wants to pay you money for it, it will never be a product or a business. So you actually cannot rely on your feelings. You have to look at what other people will actually do, their behavior. And that's where you enter the realm of much less sexy, cold, hard facts about data and behavior. Yeah. Of other people. Yeah. Which is less exciting, unless you're me. <laughs> I love that stuff. I think it can be exciting if you get excited about understanding people. I think that's interesting, personally. But you have to always think about the other person because you require them for it to be successful. Mm. And so you cannot just be like, ooh, and run off and expect that it's going to work. Okay. So, data. So this is bringing me to... This word, another word that you have strong opinions about, which is validation. And you have an article on stacking the bricks. I think Alex <laughs> wrote it, but I know it's coming from both of you that validation right. is backwards. Yes. So let's talk about that because I want to start by saying I get a lot of readers who reach out to me and they have an idea. And when I ask them, okay, well, first find out before you go buying technology course platforms, all the, the sexy stuff that makes you feel good, find out will people buy your course? 100%. And I mean, that's why when I saw one of your articles come into my Twitter feed, someone retweeted it. I was like, I like this person because that was your no bullshit stance. And I was like, ooh, we have something <laughs> in common. You know, where there's not a lot of people out there who say those things. So yeah, yay for us. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So why do you have that stance that validation is backwards? Can you explain what that means for people who don't know and then why you feel that way? Okay. So the word validation use in this sense comes from the book and the process Lean Startup yeah. by Eric Ries which is a very poor interpretation of the Toyota Lean approach <laughs> as applied to startups, which are not manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Lean, as designed by Toyota, was applied to physical manufacturing of a known product, not the generation of a brand new thing that doesn't exist and isn't a physical manufactured thing on an assembly line with known physical factors and safety margins and all that stuff. Yes. So... To start with, I think the idea of lean is bullshit. Said lightly. <laughs> poorly <laughs> metaphorized, you know, poorly transferred as a metaphor from one thing to another thing that doesn't make any sense. 
Yeah. The listeners can't see this, but Amy like looked to the side before she said, <laughs> uh, that's bullshit, but I love it. <laughs> and Eric Reese, I've met him. He's an extremely nice person. And I 100% think that he was attempting to do something wonderful. And a lot of people really like lean startups. So I want to say that this is only an attack <laughs> on the work, not the person. Yeah. Although, you know, what can you do? A lot of people really struggle with lean because of the ideas in the book that lead them astray. One of them is validation. The idea of validation is you come up with an idea for your product and then you go out there and you try to find evidence for whether it will work or will not work by talking to people and asking them, will you buy this? Yeah. Essentially. In terms of like the scientific method, theoretically, the idea is like your hypothesis and then you run experiments. But that's not what you're doing. What you've actually come up with something is a treasured idea that you then are biased for. And rather than running experiments in a controlled environment, you're asking people. And when you're asking people, they're probably nice people. And they're going to be enthusiastic because you're like looking at them with your sad puppy eyes and being like, please tell me you want my idea. And the thing is that a lot of people will talk a good talk and they'll say, oh, yeah, sure. I would use that product that requires me to spend weeks training my staff to do a whole new thing because theoretically there are benefits. But when you actually get them to actually pay for it and use it, mm -hmm. they won't do it. And so the idea of talking to people about your idea and assuming that what they say has value, I think is innately flawed because you start with a precious thing that you love and then you try to find evidence for it, which is just, it's just bad. People will say things that aren't true and they won't do it on purpose. And so that's bad. People try to hack this problem by saying, well, then ask them to pay for it right away, which is going to segue into pre-sales. But the problem with that is that if you're doing this like customer interview wise, you're putting people on the spot. And that's very different than if you go through a marketing type pre-sales type thing. And so again, it's an artificial type result. Okay. And so that is the problem with validation. And even so, even if people do want it, if you go face to face and sell them like that with your puppy dog eyes and your high pressure, okay, now that I've taken up half an hour of your time and, you know, puppy dog eyes at you for this time and I've gotten you to hand over your credit card, will that scale to the type of business that you actually want to run? So there's a lot of problems that can get you into a situation where it won't be workable long term. Yeah. So... I have a lot of thoughts like coming up as you're talking. Okay, great. Because there's so many opinions on this, right? There's so many opinions on validation. And I think it runs the gamut of people just falling into that category of wanting to hear that other people like their idea. Absolutely. And I've been guilty of that. Who doesn't want to be emotionally confirmed? Exactly. And then that next step is people who do say, okay, will you buy this thing? And for... You know, I've known people, I'm sure you've known people who have had success with that. Yes. Who've had success with having customer interviews and getting people to put money up or doing a pre-sale or whatever, a webinar, whatever form it takes, getting people to put money up for the thing. The other part, and this is getting outside of validation, that I hinge on is just because people pay money for your thing doesn't necessarily mean that it solves their problems. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think that that is a conversation that's that's not had. And we can kind of come back to that. I don't want to get us too far off. But the point is that there's so many layers to this validation thing. And at the end of the day, the first thing you need to do is find out, will people pay money for your thing? Yes. So to kind of segue into pre-selling, first, why do you think it's a good idea to pre-sell? So I don't always think it's a good idea to pre-sell. Okay. I think it's a good idea to pre-sell sometimes. There's different rules that I apply to myself and also that I teach people who come to me and ask me, should I pre-sell my course? So I pre-sold the first version of what became 30 by 500. Yeah. Well, the very first version was actually a three-hour conference call. I had outlined the call and so I knew I was going to put in it, but I had not you know, written all the stories and things at that point. Pre-sold that. I mean, that was very easy to produce for me because I knew what I wanted to talk about. And then the first version of the actual course was going to be a 12-week email course. And I outlined that as well with Alex, but had not written the lessons and it ended up being almost 100,000 words and produced that as the course went on. So I pre-sold that and produced it two to three weeks in advance. Most 
times. <laughs> and <laughs> We've that all been there. I would never recommend because it was a death march. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually very good at continuing to produce on a schedule and did not have another like a full-time job or anything that was distracting me terribly at that time. I have seen a lot of people who do really great with pre-sales because they're very good at sitting down and just doing the work. Mm. But I've also seen people who get in a horrible, depressive slump because they pre-sold and then that like takes the momentum out of their sales because the thing they were working towards was the money. (laughs) But it also adds a huge weight on their chest because now they don't have the momentum, but they have this huge obligation at the same time and the obligation is not motivating to them, but the money is motivating to them. So instead of like, they're just crushed. Yeah, yeah. And then they feel awful and they beat themselves up because they're, then they're late. And then it's like this horrific confluence of like psychological bomb that, that it's very bad. I've seen multiple people suffer with that. And so I'm like, you have to know yourself. Yeah, yeah. I've seen that as well. And when it goes wrong, it goes wrong really badly. Like yeah. people just like, <laughs> completely bomb and feel guilty and end up giving back money and um, never producing the product. It's not good. Yeah. I think you have to know yourself and you have to know the scale of the product. And you have to have like a really, really clear vision of what the product is going to be and know when it's done, I think, to pre-sell it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So with those caveats, (laughs) yeah, I like to pre-sell and Alex hates it when we (laughs) (laughs) pre-sell. Really? That's so funny. Okay. (laughs) So now I want to know why. Why does he hate pre-selling and what is it? I mean, it works for you. That does work. But even though I'm very good at sitting down and getting the work done, I'm also a chaos monkey and I like want to change stuff and improve things. And Alex is like, he hates doing things ad hoc. Yeah. And he hates (laughs) expand scope sometimes. And by sometimes, I mean pretty often and change things. And (laughs) it drives him nuts. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. (laughs) Gotcha. So... For people who are especially new course creators or just people who haven't done a pre-sell before, what does the process look like for you when you decide to pre-sell? Okay. So when I want to pre-sell something, especially if it's a new area that I'm expanding into, I always treat it exactly like it's a product that exists. So I get really, really specific about what does it look like? What does it include? I write a full sales page with all of the details. It's not like a sort of vague coming soon type of pre-sales page like with like a deep discount. I've seen a lot of those types of pre-sales pages. I don't think they're effective and I think they're crazy making because they don't really tell anyone, the buyer or the creator, what is supposed to be delivered. And I always have an idea of how long I think that the product will take to produce. I don't usually tell the buyer that mm-hmm. unless it's something that will be delivered like live. I really like when it's coursey type stuff to have some sort of live component. However, because I feel like that's a lot easier to produce and also people are more forgiving if there's something that's not perfectly polished. So if I were going to do a new course, it would probably have a live component like a three-hour boot camp or something, then if something was not perfectly polished, you know, if it wasn't perfectly, you know, a live course isn't perfectly edited. Yeah. For example, that takes a lot of the stress out of it, but also people have a a feeling that live stuff is higher value at the same time. So it is easier to pre-sell and it's less stress. And you always have to pre-sell live events. Like there's no such thing as a non-pre-sold live event. Right, right. So one of the things that I've noticed is a lot of people, just kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier, a lot of people have resistance to pre-selling. Have you ever had to advise someone of like overcoming that resistance? Because a lot of times people want to stick in, oh, my idea is fabulous. I'm just going to make it and everyone will want it. Yes. So how do you deal with resistance from your students? So the big thing I want people to avoid is to spend a year building something and then they launch it and then they make no sales whatsoever. Yeah. Because I've seen that a lot. (laughs) The number one failure is not launching anything. The number two is launching something after a long amount of time and then nobody buys it, which can ruin entrepreneurship for somebody for life, which is just really upsetting and unfortunate. 
So what I tell people is to do a tiny product first. Mm -hmm. I say, never do what I did and go from a three-hour teleconference call to a 12-week course that you produce (laughs) while you're doing it. But don't go to a 12-week course directly either, like ever, I think. Do a three-hour teleconference call or like do like a one-hour webinar that you charge for and then do like, I don't know, a five-hour video or something like that. Something that is incremental. Work up to it. If you do not spend six months in the dark, work your way up. People like smaller products also because as you said, you know, the product may not end up actually helping someone. And the only way to find out if people will actually use it is to get it in their hands. Yeah. And you can do that faster if you ship a smaller product. And a lot of times bigger products that include everything don't get used at all. Yep. Totally agree. Especially if you're not an expert in learning design. Well, and also if you are new to this whole thing of, you know, being in specifically an online entrepreneur, you haven't wrapped your head around marketing stuff. You're still trying to figure it all out. It just puts a lot of pressure on you if you just create this big thing and then you're like, oh, okay, now I need to find people who will buy it. Exactly. You're learning. You're not just doing one thing. You're not just producing a product. You're learning like 50 new skills at once. (laughs) So give yourself a fighting chance. (laughs) Exactly. And I mean, I want to make sure that people listening, I'm speaking from experience and Amy is too. Like you've got to, you learn by doing and shipping and seeing what takes hold and what doesn't. And you can spend a ton of time just building something or planning something. And at the end of the day, it feels good and it feels like you're a business owner. But if you haven't gotten people to pay you money, then it ultimately is not really a business. So do yourself a favor and just create something small. See if people will buy it. Absolutely. I know it sounds like we're just being mean, but (laughs) we really are trying to help you to get that initial success and and gain momentum. Absolutely. And I think that People hate hearing this advice yeah, and they're like, oh, they well, it's well, all well and good for you to say <laughs> you're already established, Amy. You have a million dollar business on a big list, which by the way, I mean, I do have a million dollar a year revenue business, but I don't actually have a huge list. I have a very responsive list, mm-hmm. but it's not very big. But I do this myself. 3500 is a huge product and I would never do that again. Yeah. Just fucking ship my book, which has sold, I think it was like something like $80,000 worth mm-hmm. of copies for 5,000 copies. I really should know this offhand, but I don't. It started as a 24-hour challenge and I sold it at 13,000 words. I actually live blog this on my site so people can go and read my live blog as I wrote the first version of the book. And I shipped that tiny of tiniest products at the end of a 24-hour period in which I slept. It has done great for me and people were super into the fact that I was doing it live as well. And it has really helped people. Like you mentioned, Philip Morgan, mm-hmm. Just Fucking Ship helped him launch his book, Positioning, which has like totally changed his career. And I have a great testimonial in the can for him that we haven't published yet because we're not always good at getting things done. <laughs> but um, it works no matter what business size you are, this, this tiny product thing is a real thing. Starting small and feeling it out. I wasn't 150% certain that a book titled Just Fucking Ship that was just 21 principles for breaking down a project would resonate that well. I knew people needed it. I knew people bought getting things done in other productivity books, but you cannot ever be, you know, a thousand percent certain until you do it. And I would rather be uncertain and find out after a week of work than six months of work because I don't have time for that shit. <laughs> right. Do right. what works. And do what works. If it doesn't work, you can move on quickly exactly. without having spent six months of doing the thing. So do you believe there's an X factor here? What I mean by that is that do you believe that there are certain people in our online atmosphere that have an audience that will just buy whatever and they don't really have to worry about that aspect, you know, they just put it out there and their audience is just like, oh, looking at them from the heavens and out with their credit card. I don't think so. I think that there are people whose copywriting is so good that their audience will buy whatever, whose products don't deliver what their copywriting promises. But I 
don't think that there are people who themselves are magical. Yeah. I think it's in the sales sauce. So I asked that question because I know a lot of people who are starting out look up to certain people and try to emulate, you know, that same level of success. And I think one of the key takeaways that we're saying here is when you're starting out with your first product or whatever it may be, you can't compare yourself to where they are when they've been doing it for X amount of years. The first thing that you've got to do is to see if your people are going to pay for your thing. So talking about pre-selling, we've talked about resistance, you know, getting over the fear of no. We've talked about that whole idea of focusing on your idea instead of the money. You talked about how you pre-sell. But if I'm really a newbie to all of this, Mm -hmm. what are the exact steps that I need to run to do my first pre-sell? Okay. So are we assuming the newbie is making a course or? Yes, let's assume. Okay. Like what kind of course do you think? Oh gosh. Let's say a course on web design. Okay. So video? Yep. Okay. So first thing I would say, newbie, is that you have to get a really clear outline of what the course includes and make sure that it's not too big. You can produce it quickly. Or ideally that you've already produced maybe like half of it before you start pre-selling it, especially if you're not like the most like regularly productive person. I don't think that being irregularly productive is necessarily a barrier as long as you can always come back to it. And you should definitely look at your outline of what's in there and you should like slash it in half, I think. And if that requires lowering the price, which by the way, I think it usually doesn't, you should do that if necessary. It is better to sell a smaller product for less money than to not sell a bigger product for more money because you can't get it done. Yeah. <laughs> I would then start marketing it on your blog by posting some tips or things that would lead someone to want more where that more is what's in your course. So if your course is about principles, you should write about some specific things and you could say, and you don't have to just read a grab bag of tips for every scenario. You can learn the core principles so that you would be able to know how to do this in every scenario innately by blah, 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 blah. My course will be launching soon. Enter your email address for a yep. discount. I like to do discounts for newbies because discounts are easy and everybody loves a discount. When you do a launch, you always want to give people a compelling reason to buy that's going to go away. False scarcity is bad because if you don't do it exactly right, it makes you look like a scammer. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you're a scammer. There's nothing wrong with it. You can say, I'm only going to sell X copies and that is your right. However, people don't react to it well unless you present it very precisely. That's so true. So discounts that expire at a certain time or are only available to people who sign up before a certain date, easy win, easy win. And uh, people love discounts and any special treatment. So I would have at least five to 10 marketing pieces that you'll be able to drop and tweet and Facebook or whatever it is that you do that will segue into the bigger thing, which is your course. Okay. So we got smaller outline. We got mm -hmm. partially videos produced. Your marketing uh, stuff mailing list discount. Focusing on one point and then the more being the course. Exactly, exactly. It's very important that your e-bombs, sorry, I call them e-bombs, educational content marketing, I call them e-bombs, like dropped a bomb on me. I think of the Yeah, Gap that's band. what I thought of. Do, 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 do. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> baby. Dates. You're going to want to have a date for your launch and you're going to want to work backwards from that date to figure out, you're going to send maybe like five emails. You want to have a close date for the discount, for example. You probably don't want to shut down your actual sales, but you want the discount to end. If you don't have events during your launch, people won't buy. Without deadlines, people won't act because everyone's busy. They won't take bother to sit down and decide yes or no. It's not a hard sales technique to say, just so you know, the discount mm -hmm. expires at midnight. It's true. It just is a nudge for people to decide, decide whether they do or do yeah. not want to buy. It's a hard sell to say, if you don't buy this, your career will suck forever and you're going to end up homeless. That's a hard sell. People don't know what hard selling is and they're like, oh, well, you put a number on it, therefore it's bad. No, that's, that's not true. Deadlines give people boundaries and people like boundaries. True. 
and it's effective too. Then you want to make sure that when you write your sales page, you focus on the pains that you've designed your product to solve. Like really help them remember the problems that they're having. Start off with that. That's something that I teach in my course. If you're not a good writer, you can do 10 times better if you just focus on how the reader is hurting right now because everyone is interested in themselves. Specifically, see what people are saying sucks when they're out and about complaining about things or asking for help and work that into your sales copy. And then when you produce the rest of the sales page, talk specifically about what you're going to deliver because a lot of pre-sales pages that I see are really vague and then people don't buy. And then they assume that that means there's no audience for the product and that everything is terrible and they're a shitty entrepreneur and they should give up forever when in fact they just really did a bad job of selling. And it looked really just sort of suspiciously vague. And so no one's going to invest in it. If you can't give people a picture of what they're going to get, they're not going to hand over their credit cards. That's where the really detailed outline comes in. And then you could say, you know, you'll get these six videos and they will cover these topics and they will be delivered on X date. And that's why it's a good idea to have it partially produced. Yeah. So you said a couple of things that I want to talk about. But first, the question that I get all the time. Okay. What if I have no audience? Well, you got to start there. How do I find out what people want? I'm sure you've heard that question. Yeah, absolutely. And you do sales safari. So what is your answer? How do you find out what people want if you have no audience? So if I could go back in time, if I had chosen that magical skill, <laughs> I would have chosen a different word for audience in my class that I teach 3500 than audience. Because Mm -hmm. when I say audience, everyone assumes platform, the people who follow me. But what I actually mean is the very identifiable group of people that I want to market to. Yeah, your target market. (laughs) My addressable market. Yes. Mm -hmm. But it's too late now. So (laughs) stuck with it. If you do not have followers, Mm -hmm. subscribers, etc., You can find out what people will buy. In fact, it's better to not ask your audience who follows you what they will buy because they're such a tiny segment. Who knows what biases are there? What we teach in our class, and we actually have a workshop now that's standalone that you can buy, Sales Safari Live, which we do a very poor job of promoting. I didn't even know about it. (laughs) Accomplished children have no shoes. We're working on the sales pages for these now, now that I'm, I'm feeling better. Sales Safari is where you go out and find your addressable market online where they hang out in forums or on mailing lists or even uh, Slack, chat rooms, user groups, Twitter even. Yeah. And observe what they are talking about, complaining about, asking about, recommending to each other the words that use and things when they don't know that they're being observed by you. Mm -hmm. So instead of filling out a survey, like, what would you like to see on my website? What type of product would you buy? Which I think gives false information or untrustworthy information. You are seeing what people really do when they're not trying to, like, generate business-changing content. So people use Stack Overflow. What do people tweet about in the industry? What do they post questions about on forums? What do people post on Dribbble for designers? Are there designer forums? I'm sure that there are, et cetera. And so you see, what do people buy? What do they complain about? What questions come up again and again? What are they missing? Like, so if you see a question that comes up again and again, you don't just necessarily create a product that solves, answers that question. But like, what is the reason for that question existing repeatedly? Like something is missing for that question to constantly come up. And then you can also see if they complain about products or like say like, this product's great. All designers are like super into Sketch right now, Mm -hmm. the app Sketch for wireframes. And I tried it and I'm like, this is terrible. Why is everyone (laughs) recommending this? Um, But like, that's my opinion. Everyone else loves it. So uh, like that's valuable data to someone who wants to create courses for designers. Right. Okay. And then you said, if you don't do events, your product won't sell. So what specifically do you mean, just in case people have questions, by events? Okay. So I wrote a blog post on this called the heavy metal launch curve, like (laughs) heavy metal fingers. Launches, 
people think that they put something online and people will have had such pent up demand that they will just immediately buy it. But that's not really how it works. Yeah. People buy when they are confronted with a reason to take time to read the details and make a decision. I mean, we're not talking about candy in the grocery store shopping aisle, checkout aisle, but also we kind of are because if that candy wasn't there, most people wouldn't buy it. Like there's a big difference between going to the candy aisle and being waiting in line and seeing that candy and going, oh, I kind of want that Snickers bar. And then all the marketing events that have happened to lead you to want that Snickers bar, right? Absolutely. I mean, but that's a, that's like a different exposure but, yeah. marketing. So <laughs> there are events in a launch. And I, by event, I mean any kind of date-based thing. So launch day when it opens, that usually leads to some sales. But especially if you have a small list or people don't know you very well, or you haven't built up to it in an expert way, not a lot of sales usually happen on launch day. Mm-hmm pretty common to get just a trickle or maybe even none. It doesn't mean your launch is a failure. Every time you send an email is another chance to sort of like poke people to buy something. Another major time for people to do sales is the end of a launch when something is going bye-bye. Whether that's an exploding offer, as people call it, a bonus that you only get if you buy in the first number of purchases, which I don't recommend because it's trickier to manage and it's trickier for people to predict when that happens. Or a discount expires, I think is the easiest one. Or a special offer closes. That usually triggers another buying window. So for example, 30 by 500 is a course that only opens for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. So there's no discount involved, but it closes at a certain date. So we get a heavy metal launch curve there. We usually get some pent-up demand immediately when we open. And then we get another big rush at the end. When I launched Just Fucking Ship after 24 hours, people were excited to buy it after having followed my live blog. And I got, I think, a few thousand dollars in sales immediately. And then afterwards, there was another bump every time I released a new version. Like that was another reason for people to buy it. Yeah. And then when I released the final version and said the price is going up after like three days now that the final version is done, that was another thing. So you can either do a discount that expires or an introductory price. Sometimes you might say there's only a thousand copies at this price. But again, I said, like I said, that's trickier to manage. Yeah, I've had success with both of those. I echo everything you're saying. It works really well. So are there any final tips that you can give to listeners about pre-selling or if there's some other topic you you want to share before we close? I think that I see a lot of people who don't set themselves up for an easy win and then they get really discouraged. And that's unfortunate because I've seen a lot of people who do really great work, really beautiful stuff, or that's really helpful or really useful. And then they set themselves up for failure and they don't realize they're doing it. And then they give up. And I find that really dispiriting. And I know that they do as well. Obviously, it's about me, though. Um, (laughs) Set yourself up to win Mm -hmm. is my number one advice. That's really the core of everything that I teach and write about because it's so easy to set yourself up to fail. If you get a result that you don't like, don't assume that that means that you failed. I don't like that word. I don't think that it, is accurate. Most of the time also, I once launched 30 by 500, like well into, I think the second year and nobody bought it at first. And I was like, oh no, what did I do wrong? Oh, I didn't build up momentum to launch. I just kind of announced that it was happening and then I just opened the doors. I got really lazy and I just (laughs) did that and nobody bought it. Yeah. And do you know what I did is I just took it offline and pretended right. it didn't happen. And <laughs> Nothing then to launched see it properly two <laughs> weeks later. And then I sold $40,000 in a day. It's literally almost always something you did or didn't do that you can fix. And people take it personally. A lot of things are fixable. So if you don't have a mailing list, you should build that first. If you launch a product without any list at all, it's going to be very difficult for you to make sales. And then you're going to assume that like it's never going to work. Yeah. And then you're going to give up. So don't do that. If you 
start a product because you have a great idea and then you don't make sales, you're going to assume that you're never going to be able to make a product and then you're going to give up. Don't do that. Go out there and figure out what people are buying and then provide them something that will help them and, you know, help them and build your list and then do a launch like we've talked about today so that you can have success. Because when you help people, it's the best feeling in the world. And we need more people who are focusing on their customers and producing products that really help people. Because like, look at the tech world right now. We need more people like us. Like, we want you to join us, right? <laughs> Be customer focused. You know, do nice things for people that help people and make money doing it. It's yeah. a great business. And uh, I think it's good for everyone. Yeah. This is my kind of conversation, everything. I love all of this and I'm just a little giddy and thank you so much. I just want to tell people, you know, one of the good things that came out of my time in corporate America was a term similar to what you said or a phrase rather, which is set yourself up for success. And so I just want to emphasize that that's what this conversation is about, is setting yourself up for success. I know we've kind of said, "Uh, don't do things this way, but A, give yourself some grace that you're learning things, you know. Absolutely. If it doesn't go the way you planned, that's a learning moment. And one of the wonderful things that you said is examine why it didn't go that way. Instead of just saying, oh, I'm a horrible business person and I'm never going to do this again. Yes. Well, why didn't you sell? I mean, you share that you had that experience. I've launched and it didn't really produce very well. So you have to be curious in this. If you're going to be a business person, successful business, you have to have some innate curiosity of figuring out, okay, why didn't that work? And then doing the research, doing the the digging, and then try again. Try again. Absolutely. So we're down to the final three questions, Amy. The first one is easy. What's next for you? What Anything exciting coming up? Yes. I am currently working on a a real sales page for Just (laughs) Fucking Ship because it has this sort of very lazy, very pathetic looking sales page and uh, is not really promoted on our site because I got sick and it didn't get to finish the redesign that we were working on. So yeah, I'm really, really actually very excited about that. Cool. Well, I'll be sure to share it. I just want to plug Just Fucking Ship. It was great. It changed my mindset about some things. So I can't wait for everyone to see it. Second to last question, where can people find out more about you and your work? The best site is stackingthebricks.com, which is the really the metaphor behind everything that we talked about today. Yeah. That is the name of the site that where blah, blah, blah. What just happened to my brain? I need more coffee. <laughs> you and me both. Right? <laughs> I read a, a great story once. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have, have heard this story. It's sort of business book story about the cathedral. I haven't heard it. Okay. This is like a crusty old suit manager business book, 1-800-CEO-read type business story. But there are three men working in construction, stone masons, and a man, another man, why is it always men? I don't know. Comes up to them and says, the first man, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm shaping this stone into a rectangle. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he says, well, that's boring. (laughs) Maybe altering the story as I go along. And it goes to the second man. Well, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a wall. And it goes to the third man. And he says, well, what are you doing? Those guys are boring jerks. <laughs> the third man goes, I'm building a cathedral. And he's like, oh, okay, now, now I get it. So while the first two guys are accurately describing what they're doing, they're shaping a block of stone into a brick mm-hmm. and building a wall that what they're actually doing is building a cathedral. And I think that usually people tell that story or it's using a book to be like, oh, think about the cathedral. But I think that you actually really need to think about the bricks. People don't want to think about the bricks. They want to go straight to the cathedral, but you actually have to start with the bricks. You cannot just build a cathedral poof overnight. You literally have to start with a single brick if you want to build a wall of bricks which can then become a cathedral. And that is the origin of stacking the bricks. I love that story. So I think people want to jump first to this huge success. And that's the stories that you hear. And people don't want to read about the small successes and the small wins. But that is actually how almost every major success happened. And that is actually how you get to where you want to go. Brick by brick. Okay. Brick by brick. Last question. What's your why? Why do you do this work? Ooh, 
I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) What else would I do? (laughs) Because I want to, I think is really the answer. I am not really the kind of person who sits down and writes these big emotional medium think pieces. This is what I want to do. This is what I feel good doing. I really, really feel good helping people build their businesses. And I really feel good making products that help people. So those are the reasons that I do what I do. Like, and I enjoy designing software and I enjoy creating lessons and I enjoy researching and reading books on building expertise and learning theory. And this is my ideal business, effectively. Folks, keyword is enjoy. Do what gives you energy. It's a lesson I've learned this year. And uh, Amy, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. It's been really my pleasure. I've done a lot of interviews and uh, you are really a fantastic interviewer. Thank you. I appreciate that. I love it. (laughs) I can tell. I think it really comes through that you love it. (laughs) Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Amy. It's always a pleasure talking to Amy, reading whatever she writes and following her on Twitter. So (laughs) she's always full of some just great, nuggets of wisdom. If you want to find out more about Amy and what she's up to, especially her course, check out the show notes. You can find them at zencourses.co slash 066 for episode 66. Once again, that is zencourses.co slash 066. All right. It is that time, my friends. My name is Janelle Allen, and this has been Level Up Your Course. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode and for the first official relaunch episode of the show under a new name. I hope that you enjoy everything that's coming at you, and I will see you next time.